Hey everybody, Sean King here. We're rerunning some of our favorite episodes of The Breakdown and other North Star podcasts. The, 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 the Breakdown. Is the act of creating generational wealth an act of healing? How do we consider the financial components of wellness when we are talking about healing while Black? I'm your host, Brandon Janice. And on this episode of Sick Empire, we are talking about what the progress of financial wellness has looked like for Black folks and what progress we can make to set the next generation up to succeed without financial burdens. Today is an extra special episode. I'm going to share a powerful and candid conversation I had with two brilliant financial experts, Tiffany Hawkins and Alan Boomer, who together host a podcast called The Momentum Advisor Show. Today, they school us on where a lot of our Black dollars are going today and how to reroute our millions back into our own communities. They also give us a glimpse of what they hope the future of Black financial wellness looks like. Tell me, what did finances and economic wellness look like for y'all when you were growing up? It's interesting that you asked that, right? Because I don't think I knew what my financial situation growing up looked like until I became an adult. I always assumed that we were middle class based on the neighborhood that we were raised in. Both of my parents had good jobs. I I didn't feel any financial struggle growing up. But it doesn't mean it wasn't there, right? So that's why I mean, I, I probably didn't know what our financial standing was until I became an adult and realized the sacrifices that were being made around me. I went to college. My parents did not pay for college. I do have student loans. There, there were no wealthy people in my family. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And everybody was just getting by. We didn't struggle to eat or to cover our bills or anything like that. But you know, I'd never seen wealth in my own family before in any meaningful way outside of my parents were always able to pay the bills and we were able to do a family vacation every year. I'm going to interject really quickly to give a clearer frame of reference. So Tiffany's story of growing up by no means poor, but in the red as far as generational wealth is concerned, is the narrative for a lot of Black people. What Tiffany just described is the just getting by stage, the stage that follows a financial illiterate generation. So now Tiffany is in the position a lot of young Black professionals are finding themselves in, and that is being inspired and motivated and empowered to be the financial curse breaker of their generation. So now listen to Alan describe in more detail what these stages of family finance can look like in the Black American family. When I think about my upbringing, my parents both grew up poor, but in two very different households. My mom grew up poor in a household that was riddled with alcoholism, domestic violence, and a poor set of family values. I'd call that generation negative one, meaning this is the type of generation where wealth is actively being destroyed by being financially illiterate 
and by having poor economic values, not just poor economic opportunities. My dad's family on the flip side, also very poor. My dad grew up in a, in a rural environment. He was out there literally, you know, in the 1940s, 1950s, he was out there with his siblings picking cotton, earning pennies an hour or pennies a day. And the difference though, is that my dad's family was very, uh, very spiritual. They, they had really strong family values and what I'd call, where I call my mom's family sort of generation negative one, meaning they were actively destroying wealth. My dad's family growing up was a generation zero, meaning this is the family, uh, the, the, the part of the family where there was an establishment of values that would help the family to, the next generation of the family to be financially successful. My dad's generation is what I'd call generation one. Like this was the first generation in my family that ever had the opportunity to create wealth. So similar to Tiffany, I grew up in a um, a generation one household where wealth was being, I won't say created, but established. My dad bought, bought our family home. It's the house that I grew up in when I was three years old. And so, you know, I was raised in a very stable household, very different than, than the one that my mom was raised in. The biggest thing I, I learned from my parents was the value of money and also how to earn money and that it requires hard work. It requires effort. Those values is really what, you know, the biggest thing that I'm looking to pass down to my own kids. It's the notion that you, you have to have a basic understanding of money, but you also have to understand how to create money or how to earn money. You know, so in that sense, can we talk about equity? Because I, what I don't believe, right, is that there is a lack of, of initiative or a lack of hard work amongst folk who did not grow up rich, did not grow up wealthy. You know, I think it is a generational thing. I think there's some societal issues too. So as, as economic experts, can, can y'all talk about equity in the sense of what are some of the main blockages that y'all see as far as financial equity is concerned in the black community? So I'll start with just a little bit of history. My great grandfather was born in the 1850s. My great grandfather was born into slavery. Meaning if there are other cultures who were arriving at Ellis Island around the same time, their family had an opportunity to own a home, to own a business, to work a job where they could accumulate savings. My great grandfather did not have that opportunity. Other generations have a, a head start. Other cultures have a head start over where a lot of Black folks are starting. That, that's number one. Number two, there's a huge financial legacy of discrimination and Jim Crow and redlining. Like there were policies that were promoted by the federal government to limit the ability of Black people to own real estate. And today, real estate is one of the most valuable assets in the wealth of families. 
For anyone listening who is not hip to the knowledge Alan is dropping here, I'm going to briefly break down what redlining is. Redlining is the practice of denying a creditworthy applicant a loan for housing in a certain neighborhood. Historically, Black people are victims of this discrimination, but it's not just a theory or ideology. There is a tangible aspect to it in the sense that the term redlining refers to the act of drawing red lines around positions of a city map to indicate areas where mortgage lenders are not inclined to make loans. This biased lending practice is now considered illegal under the Fair Housing Act. However, because of redlining and lowballing and discriminatory practices like these being planted in the culture of the real estate market, many Black qualified families never got a shot at owning a home or owning land to build on. And as most of us know, real estate is the game in town most wealthy people play in and stay in to continue making money for their future generations. So with that being said, Now listen to Alan continue teaching about the history of equity in economics and how the future of Black wealth creation is brighter today than it has ever been. And so while other cultures were able to buy their first home in the suburbs and those home values were appreciating and they were able to tap into their home equity to do things like educate their their children, pay for college, put down payments down on businesses, to you know, really give their family a leg up, we didn't have that opportunity to create lasting equity, not until really the last 50 years or so, right? And so we're starting with a huge disadvantage, but the beauty is that we're able to catch up in some cases. There's been a huge aspect of, of kind of leveling the playing field, and that's really been access to opportunity, access to education right? Like education is one of those things that helps people in this country to achieve a higher economic status than their parents. Entrepreneurship is another. It allows people to move up the economic ladder. And so these venues for us are are, are relatively recent. But today, the economic opportunity for Black people in this country has never been brighter. On our most recent podcast, we talked about Black Lives Matter and all of the programs that have come out of it, all of the different uh, corporations that have funded initiatives to try to help us not just receive donations to our Black charities, but also to provide capital formation, right? Venture capital dollars that we historically don't have access to are now being set aside. Grants for our businesses are now being made. Opportunities for Black creatives are being made. There's employment opportunities for companies at companies that are historically not very diverse. There's opportunities to join boards and different things that never would have been thought of were it not for 2020 and the unfortunate circumstance of the death of George Floyd. I hear you when you're talking about the opportunities are here. I hear you when you're talking about grants and loans and real estate and education, like uh, entrepreneurship. However, since it is so soon after all of the financial traumas that Black folk have been through in this country, since it is maybe 50, 60 years in, 
some of that stuff I know is still a bit foreign and maybe even a bit scary and maybe even a bit so far out of the reach for to, for for some people's minds to even grasp because it's been such a traumatic experience and such a no not you type of vibe for so long. I'm wondering like have y'all thought about, you know, that in the sense of maybe people who are are want to move ahead, maybe people who want that want better even just maybe not even for themselves but most certainly for their children. Have y'all done or seen any research, maybe even just thought about some things yourself on that idea of pushing past the history and being comfortable with taking advantage of the options that are available now, being more comfortable with understanding that, no, grants and loans and that that is for you. That's not just for white folks no more. You know, venture capitalism, that is for you. That traumatic experience that surrounds money on a on a higher level, I hope it doesn't, but it feels like it's going to take even a bit longer. I'm talking about folks, Black folks getting in the stock, the stock market and bonds and and Black folks understanding assets and Black folks understanding pooling money together to buy real estate and how that builds generational wealth. Like, do y'all have any thoughts surrounding ways or even avenues or journeys to take to, to start the process of healing from that traumatic experience that so many of us in our communities have experienced and seen and felt around money? Does that make sense? No, it definitely makes sense. And it's actually something that we work on in a variety of different ways. We literally are telling Black people, walking them through the process, having them reach out to us to say, apply for that loan, apply for that grant, apply for that government funding. Like it applies to you also. You are prepared. You are ready. You have what you need. Oftentimes we hear, I'm not really legit. I don't know if I really, you are legit. Push through, make sure you, you know, that money is available to you. So one, I think Alan and I are consistently standing on the front lines in that mission to pull our people in. Um, because we, we, we are always applying for this funding, whether it's for ourselves, our own businesses, or on behalf of our clients. And so we know for a fact this money is available to people who look like us. And so we are consistently standing on the front lines, advocating and championing Black people to, to make these moves. But I think in addition to that, what we are finding is that Black people are inquisitive. Yes, the trauma is there, but they are realizing through representation of seeing other Black people who are making it. When they see that, what we find is that they become very inquisitive. No, they might not know the entry point, but they are ready to learn. They are ready to understand. They want that, that, they want that growth opportunity around money, around assets, around what they should be doing. I think we genuinely believe that the news that is put out about Black people not having assets and not being involved in making good financial decisions is a strategy to deter or to continue to distract Black people mm -hmm. from feeling like they are, they deserve to be there. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening genuinely, I think what's, and, I, and I'm not trying to be like weirdly optimistic, progress is being made in the form of Black assets. I think it looks different for us, but progress is definitely being made. And I think that outside agendas 
are that, no, we can't allow that to happen. And so we've got to tell them that they're doing poorly for us to continue to think that's our, that that's where we belong. For us to continue to be comfortable with hearing negative things about the progress that we are making with Black wealth. One thing that we really have to develop is a sense of optimism around where we are today, both collectively and individually. And what I mean by that is that we are, of course, beaten down. We have historically been discriminated against. Like life is not a crystal stair for, for Black people. But at the same time, 2020, Black people have more opportunity today than we have ever had. There are more organizations, more politicians, more companies interested in the progress of Black people than ever before. And we've got to seize the day. We have to seize the opportunity. We are in the information age. We need to take some time and invest it in learning a little bit more about investments, a little bit more about business ownership, a little bit more about side hustles and different ways to bring in some extra income. And we've got to take full advantage of these opportunities because again, as Tiffany mentioned, the narrative is that we broke. Like the narrative is that, you know, black people in the future will have a negative net worth as a people. That That's not gonna be true in my household it's not going to be true in Tiffany's household, and it doesn't have to be true in yours. Any listener, I, I believe that we deserve reparations. I believe that if you were to try to calculate reparations, you, you'd be in the trillions of dollars. I'm not suggesting in any way that we should not, you know, push for these things. But what I am saying is that even if it doesn't happen, we need to make sure we're going to be okay regardless. One thing that Tiffany said during this conversation that was so powerful to me was that the revolution will not be televised. The revolution is going to happen in your bank account. Now listen to her break down that concept of economic freedom as a revolutionary act. What we are saying in that is we've got to, as individuals, work on our own individual wealth strategy right? Our own individual wealth so that we can pass that on, so that we can inspire others, so that whatever tidbits we learn, we can pass on to the others around us so that our bank accounts as a collective, our wealth ability as a collective, our ability to, to finance one another, in, um, invest in one another, grow in our own communities, swells into a major happening. I think is often overlooked or just not considered there isn't anything that Black people haven't got. When Black people get involved in something, we usually take it over. We usually excel. There isn't any industry in any capacity that we haven't gotten involved in that we do not make significant progress extremely fast. So I think it's kind of ridiculous for us to assume that we are not going to or that we are not tackling this wealth issue. Um, it's what we, we overcome in all areas all the time. It's what we do. It is what we are going to continue to do as long as we, again, don't absorb this narrative that, oh, no, that's the one thing that y'all always suck at and you're never going to be good at. It's just not true. I think what it comes down to is, is education. And education doesn't necessarily mean formal education. It just means information that's being passed along and executed upon.
where is the first time we kind of start after slavery, right? After after 1865, 1866, 1867, where is the first time where we kind of start seeing black wealth or black economics? Where is the first time we kind of start seeing black banking? Where is the first time we kind of start seeing black financial growth? That's a great, uh, a great question. I mean, it, it happened after that, right? Like 1865. Um, I always think about that as the absolute most challenging time possibly in our history. Right. And, and I don't mean it's worse than slavery. Post-slavery, imagine that very next day. Right. You're no longer a slave, but you have nowhere to live unless you stay with your slave owner and, you know, rent from him and you're working for him. And so he can underpay you and say that you still owe him money because he paid more in room and board for you than what you earned. And now you're in debt for the rest of your life. So Alan is right. Black people historically have been set up to lose or at best break even when it comes to financial dealings with white people. And now I'm going to briefly tell you of the first time I've seen black wealth in the archives. And it's the true story of a gentleman named Benjamin Montgomery. Now, Benjamin lived on a plantation in Mississippi owned by Joseph Davies. It was known as the Hurricane Plantation. It's a massive 5,000-acre plantation where Davies was building what he called a model slave community, where he allowed the stolen people who lived on his land to earn money off of the plantation. So Ben Montgomery did that very skilled man, skilled laborer, a mechanic, an inventor, and all of the money that he earned off of the plantation, he was able to keep. So this is the first time that I have ever seen an enslaved person who has recorded, saved money, has accumulated wealth. So Eventually, the Civil War comes, and in 1862, Joseph Davies and his family, they flee the plantation, and they loan the land to Benjamin Montgomery because Montgomery had been managing the shipping and purchasing on the entire plantation. It was very, very unusual for an enslaved man to read, write, and be able to do arithmetic as well as Montgomery had. So... In 1862, after he has loaned the land, Ben Montgomery thinks that he is well on his way to building a community of free black people, totally self-sufficient on his new land. However, the deal that he signed with the Davis was shady and his offer backfired when Montgomery missed a payment after a catastrophic flood resulted in the plantation's crop shortage. So after the missed payment, the plantation was turned back over to the Davis family and Montgomery died soon after. However, his his brilliant work was not wasted. He actually raised a son named Isaiah Montgomery, who, after his death, went on to found Mount Bayou, one of the first black towns established after the Civil War. And this is all happening at the same time as Black Wall Street is booming in Tulsa. Not too long after you start hearing about Black Wall Street in Tulsa, right? And, and this was sort of a result of discrimination. We had no choice but do business with one another, which allowed dollars in our community to start to circulate 
It is now May 31st, 1921. The day is just beginning. The first edition of the Tulsa Daily Tribune is out. The newsies are hawking their wares. Tulsa Daily Tribune, all about a Negro assaulting a white girl. Read about it. And so thousands of people buy the Tribune and scan its pages for the article about the alleged assault. In the twinkling of an eye, a part of Tulsa has changed from the happy, carefree, to looks of grim determination. I, of course, knew that there was trouble, that a race riot or race war, as it afterward proved to be, was in the making, and that we would soon be in the midst of a great catastrophe if something was not done at once to avert it. About midnight, I arose. There was shooting now in every direction, and the sounds that came from the thousands and thousands of guns was deafening. On they rushed, whooping to the top of their voices like so many cowboys and firing their guns every step they took. I reached my office in safety, but I knew that safety would be short-lived. I knew that the mobists cared nothing about the written law and the Constitution. From my office window, I could see planes circling in midair. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building. I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top. The sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. Smoke ascended the sky in thick, black volumes. As I stood there, I saw two sights that will live in my memory to my dying days. One was a woman on the opposite side of the street. She was calling wildly to a little tot that had dashed in panic before her. I hollered at her. Turn back, woman. For God's sakes, turn back. You will be mown down. Never turning her head, she answered, I must follow my child. And so she did follow her child. And not a bullet touched her, although they literally rained down the street. The other sight was occasioned by the pyro building catching on fire from the top. The fire dislodged those in the building. A woman, two children, and three men. The little children outran the others. The woman ran across the street and into the front porch of the steps I was standing on. I don't think she ever saw me. She fell upon her knees and commenced to pray. She asked God to save her and her children from whom she had just been separated. I am unable to say whether that prayer was answered or not. The three men were all killed as they were crossing the street, killed before my very eyes. Blood gushed from every wound. I turned my head from the scene. From every direction, we were surrounded. I looked north and directly in front of us stood a thousand boys with guns pointed at our heads. The ruffians marched us back down Greenwood to the convention hall. Here, I saw a mother in the dark corner of that mammoth building giving birth, premature birth, to a babe, and I heard its husky cries for the first time amid this strange, unseemly, and wicked surrounding. I thought of the place the preachers call hell and wondered seriously if there was such a mystical place. It appeared in this surrounding that the only hell was the hell on this earth such as the race was then passing through. During that bloody day, I lived 1,000 years. I lived the whole experiences of the race, the experiences of royal ancestry beyond the sea, 
experiences of the slave ships on their first voyage to America with their human cargo, experiences of American slavery and its evils. It is, however, not within the purpose of this true story to dwell on this, except to say that the chief cause was economic. The Negroes were wealthy, and there were too many poor whites who envied them. Within two hours after the alleged assault had been reported, there were not a dozen white men here who did not know that this alleged assault consisted of a poor laboring Negro boy accidentally stepping on the foot of a very poor but worthy white girl while the two were on a very crowded elevator in one of the downtown business buildings. For fully 48 hours, the fires raged and burned everything in its path and left nothing but ashes. Black Tulsa was destroyed by fire that is, its buildings and its property. But its spirit was never killed nor daunted. Listen as Alan breaks down why it's been a struggle to rebuild such cities as Tulsa, Oklahoma, and what black folks should be considering when scouting and paying for professional services, and why our casual consumerism matters today more than ever. Today, because we don't own as much as we should, right? When I say as much as we should, as much as we deserve to own, it's hard to spend 80% of your money with Black-owned businesses, right? Because for, for most people, their biggest expense is where they live and, and maybe their insurance, right? And if we don't own the, the building or the bank where the mortgage is made or the insurance company, the, then it's there's a lot of our dollars that we, we can't control. But the dollars that we do control, we've, we've got to make sure that we're very thoughtful about how we spend those dollars. Are we hiring the Black accountant, the Black lawyer, the Black doctor? Are we hiring the Black realtor? Are we thinking about the Black restaurant? Are we thinking about the Black designer, the Black watchmaker? The, you know, you name it, but we have to be a lot more conscious with how we spend. And we've got to be comfortable with the idea that we're going to create wealth for other people and it'll help create wealth for us. Meaning like if I support your business, now your household is flourishing. I've got to be good with that. And I have to know that if I create something that people will have an opportunity to show love back to me as well. And if we can embrace that mentality, we can ourselves take advantage of fixing this issue. Like there's so much money in our community right now. It's crazy. We just have to make sure that it's not going all back to outside of our community, right? And that's the one thing that I worry about. You know, the Black Lives Matter organizations that are receiving this funding, are they going to turn around and invest it with people that don't look like them? Are they going to turn around and hire professionals that don't look like them? Because mm -hmm. if that's the case, then this is not a, a life-changing moment. This is a flash in the pan, right? And, and I think this can be a life-changing moment for us. Yes. You know, you said something that I think a lot of people kind of tiptoe around. That crabs in a bucket mentality is partially true. I think the biggest issue I see with that mentality is that we hold our Black businesses to a significantly higher standard than we hold any other business to. And what I mean by that is anytime a Black-owned business 
does something bad, we apply that bad experience to every single black business, even if it's in a different industry, a different state, a different business owner, but we will have bad experiences in other cultural businesses and, and we'll just attribute it to that business. And what I mean by that is, imagine going to a Chinese restaurant and you, and they and your food comes out bad or it comes out cold. You never hear people say, I'm never going to another Chinese restaurant again the rest of my life because they messed up my order this one time. Right, right. right? But how many times have you heard someone say, I tried to do business with the black man, but he did this wrong. So now I'm not doing business with any other black person. So we've got to stop holding ourselves to that super high standard. And we've got to start expecting that they're going to do a good job. And if they don't do a good job, you charge it to them. Don't charge it to everybody else. And also give them a chance to correct. Pull them to the side. Like, don't go to Yelp. Don't go to Facebook. Don't go blasting them in public. Pull them to the side and say, hey, you know, I really liked the idea of doing business with you, but this didn't go well. And maybe next time, here's what you should do differently. Big picture for the Black community as a whole. I think that we are very easily fed terms, ideologies, and again, thoughts about ourselves that did not come from ourselves. We oftentimes see when a Black person does get a lot of wealth in whatever capacity, that whether it's through entrepreneurship, just working hard, sports, whatever it is, there's a mad dash to connect with a specific bank. Or, you know, I, I can't wait till I'm able to bank at Goldman Sachs, or I can't wait till I'm able to do such and such with this organization. And it's very rare that we find our value within our own service providers. And that's a problem. Tiffany and I are both documentary movie fanatics. And we talked on this call about a documentary called The Scheme. It's about a young black man from Michigan who successfully merges his passion for basketball and entrepreneurship and very quickly had to deal with the absolute full weight of the FBI. So I love the scheme. I think it's amazing. And I know that Christian is on to doing other things and is still growing in the entertainment space. So he definitely hasn't let up. I think the reason why in that specific scenario and scenarios like that, I think the reason why people, white people, get so up in arms and have the ability to put the kibosh on people like Christian in those situations is because it's not enough of us. It's like, oh, there's one of them trying to do something. You know, they're, they're, look at that one over there trying to get, get involved in our industry. Let's go ahead and shut that down, right? If it was happening in mass, you would not be able to shut us down, first of all. It's a layered, complex story with a lot of moving parts, but the gist of it is that the NCAA is operating on a racist business model. A model where white owners and white coaches benefit off of the free labor of Black teenagers and Black men. So with the documentary movie, The Scheme, in mind, I asked Tiffany and Alan to paint me a picture of the perfect scenario of the future of Black wellness and Black wholeness as we advance financially. Here's what they had to say. You know what's going to be really funny about my answer is that it's, it's, it's painfully simple. It's painfully simple and it's extremely easy to do if we do it in mass. But I think the very simple answer, I think the very, very simple solution is that if we request it, if we require it, if the athlete is saying, 
I'm only working with a black advisor. You got to send me a black agent. You got to like, that's what's not happening. Start saying, I need to make sure there's some black people in the room. Why, why is everybody in here white? Right. right. Who, who's going to be working with me, who understands me, who looks like me? We are starting to see it in college athletes starting to go to HBCUs, right? D1 athletes are now saying, you know what, I'm going to go to an HBCU. And immediately what, what's happening because of that is the ESPNs of the world are now saying, well, okay, we got to find time in our programming schedule to focus on HBCUs, which has never happened before. Like they will run an HBCU game randomly, but now knowing that these D1 athletes are going to be at historically black colleges, they are now having to open up a window and pipeline to focus on historically black colleges, making sure they have dollars, making sure they have the infrastructure to be able to view their games, view these athletes. It's a shift in saying, oh, I'm only working with my people in all regards. And on that note, we it's easy to point fingers and say, yeah, they, they, those athletes need to start hiring black agents and financial advisors. But the four fingers, the three fingers that are pointing back at us, we've got to also think about that in our own households. When it's time for you to hire someone for anything that you need done, whether it's a repair at your home, whether it's a uh, some construction you're doing at, at your you know, at your parents' house, if it's a contract being offered by your company, you've got to have your own, what I call the Rooney rule. The Rooney rule is a rule in football that basically said for any GM position, they've got to at least interview a black person for the job. We need our own Rooney rule. Like how many times have we gone out to spend our money and we did not even consider if there was a black person that could have done that? Right. It doesn't mean you got to hire them every time, but we at least have to think about it. And I mean, for everything from your doctor to your accountant, to your lawyer, to the person that you hire to if, if you can afford someone to clean your apartment. Something that we think is pretty laughable is that for black people who are, you know, blackout Fridays and I'm only buying black and I'm only, you know, sending my children to HBCUs. But if their money is being managed by a white person, if they're doing their insurance through a white person, you are absolutely feeding white families at a very meaningful pace. Mm. People don't think about the service providers that you are using. That is a very, very quick pipeline of wealth creation for other people. Yeah. Alan and I do a, a series called is your money racist? The answer is usually yes, right? Usually all of our money is racist in ways that we have absolutely no clue. So we did a show on institutional funds on is your money racist, right? just institutions, period. And what we were talking about is HBCUs, pretty much all HBCUs um, use mostly, if not all white service providers in every way, shape or form, from janitorial wow. services, from food service to who manages their endowment to literally everything under the sun. Wow. And that's a problem. That's millions and millions and millions of dollars that are going to white families. The money that is donated by black alumni that is right. going directly to white families, that is directly growing white wealth. And that is, there isn't, the, like there are some HBCUs that do better than others, but all of them are doing that. That's a huge, huge problem. And that's a huge pipeline of wealth. Not only is it not hitting our community, 
But for and Alan and I went to HBCUs and we 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 include our HBCU. We we did the research on ours as well, and ours is lumped in as well. Uh, but not only is it not hitting the black community, it's not even hitting the relevant alumni community. You're not even supporting your own alum. That's I mean, just to give you a couple of quick examples, Howard University has the largest endowment of any HBCU. It's just over a billion dollars. And Howard has one of the highest percentage, highest percentages of black money managers of any institution in this country. Their percentage is 10 percent. And that is the highest with a one billion dollar endowment. It's among the highest. And that so that means 90 percent of the money is being managed by people that don't look like the the people that Howard is producing. I worked on Wall Street for my entire career. You know how many Howard grads I met who are capable of managing that type of money, who would love to have their own firm, who would love to have the opportunity to, to manage a piece of that endowment. But we're so focused, we need to donate to these institutions. Well, these institutions also need to turn around and do business with people that look like them. Yes. This was this was really eye opening. I mean, I had no idea. I don't even think I even considered the fact that they that every single person behind the scenes was wasn't also black. No, so that is. I mean, that is that is shocking. You even um, think about like you think about the the food service provider. You think I'm going to a black school. I'm gonna have some good food. You're gonna have some good food from a white person. From the groundskeeping contract, from the janitorial contract to the more sophisticated contracts. But across the board, HBCUs are definitely driving white wealth with black dollars. That's a big wake up call for myself and I think a lot of other people. You know, my intentions with today's show was to explore questions surrounding black financial wellness. How can we heal from the traumas of the almighty dollar? How can we turn economic woes into generational wealth? If you leave with one thing from this episode, leave with this. If you are Black, you can start the healing process. You can start the healing revolution in your pocketbook. I want to thank the producers of Sick Empire, Willis Polk and Phil Williams. I'd like to thank everyone at the North Star. This show is supported by our members. So if you liked what you heard today, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review telling us what you loved about the show. Also, you can become a North Star member and gain access to our exclusive Sick Empire interviews and episodes by signing up at thenorthstar.com. This is Brandon Janice, and you just listened to Sick Empire.